Well, as we looked at uh, the second letter of John last week, we saw this emphasis in that letter on walking in truth and love. So this morning, we have an example of walking in truth and love. And the focus for our study today is the shortest of the Bible books. Uh, You'll see it actually has one verse more than 2 John. It has 14 verses, whereas 2 John only has 13. But if you actually did a word count you discover that it has five fewer words. And that's also true in the original Greek. Uh, in English, 296 words in 3 John, 301 in 2 John. And as with 2 John, as you read the letter, the author is anonymous. He introduces himself simply as the elder. And rather than repeat a lot of the things I said in the introduction last week, if, if you want to listen to that introduction on 2 John from last Sunday morning, you can do that. I went into a little detail there as to how we can be confident that these letters were written by John and who this John is. But this is the John, the disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ, who wrote the fourth gospel, who also wrote down the details of that revelation given to him by Christ, which comprises the last book of the Bible. And as we have just read from 3 John, if you were with us last Sunday, you'll have recognised immediately a few obvious similarities in vocabulary and tone and emphasis. The standout feature, again, being John's reference to the place of truth and love in Christian experience and practice. In these opening eight verses, he speaks of truth five times. Indeed, this letter remains with us in order that we may learn from the example of Gaius as John speaks about the place of truth in the life of Gaius in verses 3 and 4 and the love that Gaius has in verses 5 and 6. You'll see that John's uh, opening salutation is, is very, very similar to the one that we read last week from 2 John. In 2 John, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And here, uh, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Uh, and this comes from the heart. You'll see how John uh, continues to refer to him as beloved, beloved, beloved. Now, if you do listen to some Christians today, they will try to tell you that the answer to many of the church's problems is not to worry too much about truth, but just to focus on love. But that's completely contrary to the Bible. Being a Christian is about living out the truth that you know. And how can you do that if you do not know the truth? And the ultimate truth is Christ, who is the truth. So how can you do it if you do not know him? John is at pains to stress once more that the love that he has for Gaius is on the basis of the truth in which both of them stand. Because this truth has as its fruit this love. This love is the fruit of those who stand in this truth. Now, we're not sure who this Gaius is. If you'd looked up that year's top 10 names for boys in the Ephesus Echo, because we believe John was living in Ephesus when he wrote this letter, you'd have found Gaius ranked at number one for boys' names, and for several years. 
Uh, don't know if Ben and Suzanne have got Gaius on their list of names. We haven't had a Gaius in the church yet, have we? But it was, it was the most popular boy's name back then, which makes it even more difficult to be quite sure who this Gaius might be. There are several men of this name who are mentioned in the New Testament. When we get to chapter 16 of Romans, when we return to that in the autumn, Paul will mention a Gaius who is a member of the church in Corinth. He would fit the bill, could be him. Another Gaius is mentioned in Acts chapter 19. We're told that he was from northern Greece. He's a Macedonian travelling companion of the Apostle Paul. So someone who Paul knew very well. The third Gaius was from the southern, uh, the southern coast of modern-day Turkey, uh, a city called Derby, uh, a region called Lyconia, part of the province of Galatia, not very far from Paul's hometown of Tarsus. Was it one of these men called Gaius? Well, maybe. Was it another man called Gaius? Well, the name was so popular that could also be true. Uh, we don't know for certain. Many have held that it was the Gaius from Derby in Galatia. But what we do see is that there is this obvious affinity between John and Gaius. It would seem there's some spiritual link, there's some spiritual history, it would seem, between these two men. In 2, in two John, John there talks about finding some of your children walking in truth. But here, John speaks of the joy in hearing about his own children walking in truth. So perhaps with John and Gaius, that there was like a, a spiritual father and son relationship maybe, similar to the one that we read about between Paul and Timothy, and no doubt Paul and a lot of other younger men. What we do know is that Gaius was a godly believer from whom we can learn much, and as we continue to learn much from John. So here's the, the first of some lessons for us this morning. Uh, looking primarily at verses 2 to 4 to begin with. Desiring one another's good, both physical and spiritual. Now, as John begins verse 2, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health. You could be forgiven for thinking to yourself, John, what on earth are you doing? You've just provided the perfect justification for the prosperity gospel. That you may prosper in all things and be in health. Well, three crucial things need to be noted. Uh, number one, you could only use this text in a prosperity gospel message if you stopped reading at the word health. Number two, that's exactly what a prosperity gospel preacher would do with this verse. Number three, we are going to keep on reading and make sure that we understand the whole context of what is being said here. But John does make it clear that it's a perfectly legitimate thing to pray that other Christians might have a healthy life and that they might prosper in the various endeavours to which they give themselves. That's how John prays for Gaius. After all, 
if you truly love someone, why on earth would you pray for them to live in abject misery? Now, of course, that may well prove to be the lot in life for some Christians. God might have some miserable years ahead for some of us here. We don't know. We wouldn't wish that on one another. No, says John, I wish you well, Gaius. I wish you all the best, we might say. All the best in all that you do. When I see another Christian enjoying success, I'm not to be immediately filled either with suspicion or with envy, but to truly rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That's the heart of John for this man. Maybe Gaius has recently been unwell, and that's why John wishes him good health. We don't know, but this is John's love for him. I love this man. Why would I not wish him well? Why would I not pray that God might bless him like that? But that's not all that John says, is it? And there's something else here that you must not miss and that you must not skirt over. John says all of these things within a very particular context. And when you lose the context of Scripture, you can make it say virtually anything you want it to. What do we learn about this man, Gaius, for whom John prays in this way? Well, we see in verse 3 that Gaius is a man whose soul has prospered. Gaius is a man of spiritual maturity. Gaius is a man who, when others come to speak to John about him in verse 3, they spoke of his spiritual spiritual maturity and understanding, his Christian example. The truth is in this man. Here is one over whom John rejoices, but John's rejoicing is not in the success and the good health that Gaius has been uh, been experiencing. John's rejoicing is because Gaius is genuinely and sincerely walking in the truth, verse 4. He has a prosperous and healthy soul. That's the uppermost thing for John. Now, how might you describe or define a prosperous soul? Well, I want to give you a quote from a man called John Gill. And I thought, well, let me just tell you who John Gill is. Here's a a brief snippet of Baptist church history. You should know this stuff. John Gill was a Baptist pastor about 300 years ago. For 50 years he pastored one church, a church which previously had had a man called Benjamin Keach as its pastor. Ever heard of Benjamin Keach? Should know him. Benjamin Keach was one of the founding fathers of Baptist churches after the Reformation. Keach was one of the men involved in producing and publishing the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Keach was one of its signatories. Uh, Austin Walker, father of Dan and Jeremy, Jeremy, uh, he's published a really good biography on Benjamin Keach. That same church, 100 years after John Gill, and now called New Park Street Chapel, would appoint a man just 20 years old as its pastor. 
You've all heard of him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Under his ministry, that church would experience immense blessing and growth. It would become known as Metropolitan Tabernacle, which continues to this day. So this John Gill that I'm about to quote from, he had his role to play in 400 years of continual Baptist ministry and witness and testimony. Isn't that wonderful? Well, here are his thoughts on this issue of having a prosperous soul. Does this describe you this morning? The soul is diseased with sin and may be said to be in good health when all its iniquities are forgiven. And may be said to prosper when having a spiritual appetite for the gospel, the sincere milk of the word, it feeds upon it, is nourished by it and grows by it. The soul may be said to prosper when it's in the lively exercise of faith and hope and love, when spiritual knowledge is increasing and it grows in grace and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. The soul may be said to prosper when the inward man is renewed day by day with fresh strength, when, it's, when it enjoys communion with God Fancy that, enjoying communion with God. When it enjoys communion with God, has the light of his countenance, the joys of his salvation, when it is fruitful in every good work. How's your soul this morning? What churches we'd be today if that was an accurate description of every member. Hearing Gaius is such a man, a man of spiritual maturity. Here is a man who is walking in truth, in biblical truth, in gospel truth, in the truth and reality of God's grace and salvation, in the truth and reality of Christ, his Saviour. So don't miss what John says at the end of verse 4. I have no greater joy. Now, I'm praying for this man. I want everything that he does to go well for him. I pray for him to have good health. But I have no greater joy than to know that this man is walking in the truth. Over everything else, that's what counts. Over everything else, that's what will last for eternity. I do pray that the Lord will prosper all he does. And if God does prosper him, whilst I will rejoice in that, I'll be rejoicing even more to know that he's still walking in truth. And what if the Lord does not prosper him physically? What if the Lord does not prosper his health? His walking in truth will continue to be of far greater importance than any of those things. So this is John's heart, you see. I do pray that the Lord might bless him with good health, but even if his health should fail him, my greater concern for him will be that his walking in truth does not fail him. 
how I, how, how I will rejoice when I hear that. Despite his ill health, he's still walking in truth. It's because I know he's walking in truth that I'm ready to pray that the Lord would prosper him in all these other things. It's because I know he has his priorities right. I can confidently pray for him like this. It's because I know that in whatever the Lord may prosper his life in the future, it will all be used to the Lord's service and to the Lord's glory and honour. Because he's a Christian who's walking right. If someone were to pray for you, like John prays for Gaius, which is to pray that your physical life and well-being would be on the same level as your spiritual life and well-being, is that a prayer you'd want them to pray for you? That your spiritual life would match your physical life? Because that's how John prays for Gaius. What lies on your heart most for others? Their physical good or their spiritual good? Don't be a Christian who only ever prays for other people when you hear of some physical need they have. How we need to have this same kind of heart towards one another as the apostles example to us in the scriptures. How, how they teach us how we ought to pray. So as we've gone through this first point, we see Gaius has this life which is grounded in truth. And if you cast your mind back to last Sunday morning, you'll remember straight away that there is another attribute which in the Bible is inseparably linked to truth in the life of the Christian, and that is love. These two go hand in glove all over the place in the Bible. And, and it's the thrust of, of Second John, truth and love. So as we move into verse 5 and 6, we see walking in truth is confirmed in the outworking of love. John knows that if this man's walking in truth is real, the evidence of his love will never be far away. And these brethren have come back to John with this twofold testimony concerning Gaius. They've testified of the truth that's in him, and note that John puts that first, then they bear witness of his love. And this is what the doctrines of the gospel are to be producing in every Christian, this love that flows out from being in the truth. This is the litmus test. This is a condensed and concentrated form, both in 2 John and 3 John, of the themes of John's much longer first letter, where he goes into much more detail on all of these things, where he lays out certain tests, if you like, which will prove, genuine or otherwise, a person's confession of faith. There's a doctrinal test, what it is that you believe. There's a relationship test and a moral test, how it is that we live out our faith. And there's an obedience test, are we obedient to God and his word? To be obedient, to live spiritually and morally upright and to do it in truth and love. What do you believe? How do you live, especially in relationship to others and to other believers in particular? How obedient to God's word are you? 
How changed is your life as that word does its ongoing sanctifying work within you? Now, now we don't really have many details provided here about what it actually is that Gaius is doing, but we have some big clues. And I think we can quite safely read between the lines a little about the life of Gaius. The witness that is born about his love before the church, sending people forward on their journey. Gaius receives people into his home. He ministers to the needs of others. He ministers to them in their spiritual need. He ministers to them in their physical need. Was it spectacular what Gaius did? Not at all. Not in the slightest. Would it have been in the news headlines what Gaius did? No. Was it simple and without fuss? Very likely it was. It seems to me that as much as he was able and according to all the gifts and graces and resources that God had given him, he was a man who did whatever he could to meet the needs of others, both spiritual and physical, and it came from his heart. And the catalyst for it is the truth of the gospel in which he stands. And he simply serves other believers with love and grace and conviction and humility and with generosity and with a careful, attentive thoughtfulness and kindness. The way he sends people on, on their journey. People who don't need to take anything from the Gentiles, verse 7. Because there are men like Gaius who are providing all that they need. And in doing so, he is a fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. It, it's not his to go out and be an itinerant preacher. But for those who are, oh, the help and the support and the encouragement that he gives them. Gaius has this loving concern. He shows it to those Christians he knows. Christians in his own church, the brethren, verse 5. He shows it for other Christians who he hasn't, he's never met before, but who are just passing through. He, he shows them exactly the same love and concern. Uh, the inference here is, is that he's showing this concern to gospel preachers who are going out preaching the gospel, some of whom John knows personally. Those who are not the sort mentioned in the second half of 2 John. It seems that at least some of these travelling preachers were associates of John. It's they who are the brethren in verse 3, reporting these things back to John about this man Gaius who they've met. And look at what is said about him. What Gaius does, he does faithfully. What a joy to have those in the life of the church who serve faithfully and consistently. They never let you down. If they say they'll be there, they'll be there. If they say they'll do that, they'll do it. If their name is on the rotor, there they are, prepared. When the preacher comes to the front each Sunday to lead the worship, there they are. Whenever the church gathers to pray, there they are, 
Whenever a need in the fellowship arises, how often will they be amongst the first to step in? This undercurrent of truth and love working itself out amongst us in the church towards one another. How thankful to have those in our own church who are just like this. If you know you're not one of them, well, maybe today you can resolve before the Lord or give me the heart of Gaius. Give me the faithfulness of Gaius. Help me learn from the example of Gaius that you've recorded in your word. And from all that Gaius does, thirdly, we see the benefit received by others. The benefit received. Look at the second, the second half of verse 6 and into uh, verse 8. Sending them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. You do well. They've gone forth for his name's sake. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. When people have spent time with Gaius, when people have been on the receiving end of his love and hospitality, when people have come face to face with his example of what it means to walk in truth, they leave his company all the better for it. How they rejoice over the day they met Gaius. How they rejoice over the hours they spent in his home. As they left his home, they would, he would still be providing for their physical welfare on their onward journey in a manner worthy of God. His own life and example is worthy of the calling with which he's being called. And the provision that he has for these brothers, it shows that he recognises, he appreciates the worthiness of what they are doing in the Lord's service. And so it is nothing to him to help them. He understands this. They're walking in the same truth. They're sharing the same love. And they continue on their way feeling so blessed, so encouraged, probably got a renewed skip in their step having been with this godly man. Their future ministry will be even more in keeping with that which is worthy of God because of what Gaius has given to them. To spend time with Gaius is to grow and be encouraged spiritually. To spend time with Gaius is to have a Christian example which is safe to emulate. What a, what a man that is, how we need men and women like this in the church. How is it for you? Do people leave your company thoroughly dismayed because all you've done is run down the church and badmouth people? Do people leave your company thoroughly exhausted because all you've done is talk about yourself and unload onto them all of your problems and hang-ups? Do people leave your company totally confused because of the wonky things that you're talking about? You're a long way from walking in the truth. I found myself thinking of Dorcas, Tabitha, in Acts chapter 9. The lady who was so deeply mourned over when she died. Some might have said, but she just makes clothes. 
What's the big deal? But how powerful a testimony making clothes can be when it's done in the truth and love of the gospel. She just made clothes. But boy, did she make clothes. You don't need any great, special, unique talent to live out the gospel and be a fellow worker. Isn't that good to know? You don't. You need a heart that leaps for joy when others are walking in the truth. You do need that. And that will be a good indicator of your own soul. And a soul that's prospering in in fellowship with the living God will take whatever opportunities and resources God has placed in your hands, whatever they are, be they great, be they small, be they common, be they rare, whatever opportunities and resources God has placed into your hands, all that God requires of you is that you use them well and what you do, you do faithfully, in truth and in love. And that's it. It's a big it, but that's it. It doesn't need all kinds of bells and whistles to be attached to it. It doesn't need to have 100,000 likes on social media and subscribers doubling by the week. It could be that no one else knows, but it just needs to be done in truth and in love in Christ. You don't know how God can use that. That's the kind of person God can use with amazing results in his kingdom. That's the kind of man Gaius was. And here we are talking about him 2,000 years later. Let this be you. Let this be me. Fellow workers in fellowship together for Christ's sake and in Christ's name.